The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning, my first guest is Chang Ray Lee. Chang Ray Lee is the author of On Such Full Sea. That's his new book. He is the author also of Native Speaker, which was the winner of the Hemingway Foundation Award for First Fiction. He has been selected by The New Yorker as one of the 20 writers for the 21st century, um, and his new book is what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Chang Ray. Nice to talk to you, Catherine. Great to talk to you. This is an interesting book. I just recently read the review in the New York Times about the book, which I'm sure you've read as well. Um, but On Such Full Sea has been described as a chilling dystopia, uh, a century or so beyond the present, uh, where yeah, abandoned post-industrial cities like Baltimore have converted into forced labor colonies and populated with immigrant workers. So this is kind of a future, not kind of, it's a taking a look at the future or the possible future. I know, uh, is it, why don't you describe the book and um, I'll let you start. Okay. Well, well, the, the book is um, is set in the future and, and it's um, it's a story that um, sort of took me by surprise. In fact, I um, I don't normally write futuristic books or so-called dystopian novels. Um, you know, I'd I'd enjoyed science fiction as a kid, and but um, but normally I you know I write about uh, contemporary uh, situations or historical situations. And but this book was um, sort of came upon me because I I had a premise about. Uh, for a story that I liked, and that that premise was what you mentioned. You know, the the idea of taking um, uh, decaying urban areas of the United States, and and I think you know we've a lot of us have seen those kinds of things, particularly in the Midwest and Northeast, uh, post-industrial kind of towns that were manufacturing had had disappeared, and and neighborhoods had become ghettoized um, for that reason and lots of others. Um, and as a citizen, I just been sort of frustrated with seeing all these things, especially when I went on book tour, and, and I thought, well, why can't, uh, you know, why can't we allow uh, people to live there? You know, there's this particular neighbor of Baltimore I'd been seeing, and I uh, had been boarded up and, uh, and really sort of cleaned out of people. Uh, they hadn't raised it or knocked it down. It just forced all the people out, and I thought that, you know, why not have, you know, some settlers from somewhere else, uh, you know, uh, live there on uh, be brought in on moss and 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 see what they can do with it and of course um you know such a thing would never happen in contemporary times and but I thought that maybe in a different kind of america uh in a place hundred fifty two hundred years from now um in a time hundred fifty two hundred years from now that 
that perhaps um, such settlers would be um, uh, needed and maybe even welcomed, um, you know, to pr- produce and provide certain certain goods for the people of that time. Um, but of course, once you start thinking about the future, then and actually set a story there, you have to describe that future. And I guess, I guess the way that the future America that I saw uh, had developed was, um, you know, quite quite a chaotic, difficult place, uh, a place that was um, uh, riven by class, uh, pretty rigid class uh, divides, uh, so that the rich and and the workers and and those with really nothing um, were really set apart from each other. So this is an exaggeration of what's happening right now, or you know, we're talking about the the one the one percent, and there is a stratification in terms of the rich and the poor. So this takes it yeah. even, I guess, yeah, to another degree. So we're talking yeah, about I mean, class I hope it's and not race an exaggeration, and, yeah. more an extrapolation of what, <laughs> of what I see as uh, you know. Again, I mean, I think we're all sensing as citizens, uh, no matter our, our economic status. I think we all have to admit. Uh, that there's um, there's been a divide, um, that there are sort of walls between us, between us, the 1%, the, the 99%, or, or even the 0.1%. And then, of course, the, an, an underclass of people who, uh, who, and I'm describing our society, who, you know, are constantly have diminished health care, diminished education, diminished opportunity. And I guess that's one of the things that I just, you know, that in the course of writing the book, realized about, about myself and my views of, of our society, about what my anxieties were, uh, about about you know the certain trends in, in our in, in our civilization. Yeah. Well, you also talk about environmental catastrophes. Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and not as much in the book. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, literally the atmosphere uh, around the book. You know, the extremes in, in weather and. Uh, some um, you know poisonings of land, um, and that's one of the reasons why um, the, the the workers uh, in in this place called Beemore, which is the former Baltimore, they raise uh, in the novel they raise uh, pristine fishes and vegetables for the elite charter class uh, who can afford those things, and and they do that because uh, they, you really can't raise food anymore outside because of the uh, because of the environment. And also there's disease. I mean, you talk about this, uh, what, cancer-like disease that prevails as well? Right, yeah. There's a, there's a cancer-like disease called C that, that basically everyone in the society eventually will succumb to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's sort of accepted by the people in this world. Um, Which I just and, saw actually on I, uh, the news that I, I, it sort of follows your book. By 30 years from now, it, it, that we all are going to succumb to cancer. Um, I don't know if you read the latest statistics, but anyway, it kind of fits into your. No, I, mean, I haven't. But you know, again, it's something that I think we're all sort of sensing about about cancer. You know, we have so much, so many research dollars going to the cures of cancer, but. Cancer is sort of a disease of our times, isn't it? It's uh, sort of uh, our cells mutating, going wild, out of out of whack, um, and we can't really figure out exactly why it happens. Um, it seems to be a moving target, um, and that and that maybe you know it's it's a disease that that uh, I hope we can conquer, but uh, but one can imagine a, a future in which it hasn't been conquered. And, okay, and so you, that's okay. the that's sort of the, the atmosphere, the situation of the world. And, and one of the things that, that catalyzes the story is that, 
uh, fan who is a 16-year-old girl, a fish diver, a she's tank the diver, and be more. Story, yeah, she's the heroine of the novel. Yeah. Um, her boyfriend actually disappears, and it's it's presumed that he disappears because he's actually discovered to to be sea free. You know, someone who's not going to succumb to the disease, and so so she goes out in search of him, and and that's really what sets out the uh, the story. Well, does Fan become this young girl? Does she become the symbol of the person who uh, can save the world for us? Because you know, as you describe the world post Baltimore in this futuristic time, it sounds horrific, and uh, you know all of these what we just discussed: the environmental catastrophes and disease and cancer and the stratification of uh, the rich and the poor have all come to kind of fruition. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that she's she's not the typical hero in that she has a lot of. Uh, I mean, her role is not to fix the world or or save the world. I think it's it's more she's a she's a symbol of a certain kind of uh, I suppose liberty and freedom from from the world. Um, an idea that 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 the, the people of, of on such a full sea can can find a way to get break out of their circumstance. Uh, maybe not be free of the diseases or the, the poor environment, but um, but can break out from something that I think all that chaos and all that, um, all those burdens have, uh, what, those, what all those things have done to them, which is really suppress not just their freedoms, but their imagination. And I think what Fan does in the book is that she she risks everything to go out and and of course, she has all these exploits, but uh, she she is someone who doesn't want you know who, who's not who's not comfortable uh, or settling to stay in her place. And I think that's one of the things that that the novel is interested in about about the, the problems with staying and accepting your place. Um, and and Sand, of course, is, uh, does the opposite of that. So she is our hope for the or can be or symbolizes hope, but doing something about it that there is. She's able to extricate herself from this. Right, right. Yeah. She's quite active. And, and, you know, part of the story, really half the story is just her adventure out into this world. She goes out into the so-called open counties where there's no governmental oversight. Uh, people are really living hand-to-mouth, um, you know, really left to their own devices. And um, so she encounters uh, the world there and, uh, and then eventually we'll get to a charter village where they have everything, but they seem to be empty in other ways. Um, and I think one of the things that I enjoyed about writing the novel that I didn't quite anticipate enjoying is, is you know, creating a, a little, you know, these particular societies and cultures and then, and then trying to see how those particular societies and cultures influence and inform the people within them, you know. Um, and that's something that I've, been interested in, I think, all throughout my career as a writer, you know, how, how culture and, uh, and community, um, you know, form and deform us as individuals. Yeah, well, well, Fan is a fictional character, and obviously in the book is a novel. Can, can we talk about that in terms of, like, what is happening today, in, not, you know, in, in reality, and maybe what we could learn from, your, from the novel in terms of what do we need to change today so that we don't end up in this futuristic uh, Baltimore well, I think one of the things that the novel talks about, yeah, you mentioned it, is the class stratification. But to me, it's, you know, that obviously there's, in a capitalist society, there will always be classes, right? But but I think 
um, one of the one of my concerns in the book is that the class structure has been is getting calcified so that there's no mobility anymore. In fact, there's not even dream of mobility in the world of on such a full sea. Um, you're born in a particular place, and that's where your destiny uh, will keep you. And and that's one of the things that I. Um, that, and do you think you know, that's from, where we are really headed? I, seen, I just want to you know, interrupt you. And articles that I'm reading yes. um, is is one of I think our greatest challenges today. Um, even you know, like uh, Mark Rubio, uh, conservative uh, you know politician, uh, he even worries about. You know, the fact that he gave a statistic 70% of boys born in poverty will stay in poverty throughout their lives. I mean, that's a, that's a profoundly high number. Uh, and um, and it, it, I think it reveals um, maybe some things that we do need to change as a society to, to Well, what are those things that I'm really curious is what you think or what we do need to change? Because, you know, yes, we get those statistics, which are horrifying when you're talking about 70% of boys in poverty will remain in poverty. And, you know, we get these statistics every day. Okay, but what do we do? I mean, I just want to get you, you know, what do you think we should be doing about it now? I I mean, I think it's, um, you know, we should put more resources towards early childhood education, early childhood uh, daycare and after, you know, so people can work and they're, you you know, people who can't afford to pay, uh, for private uh, preschool uh, who are, say, working um, minimum wage jobs so that their kids can be looked after and, and educated um, in a safe and uh, supportive environment. Um, the other side of that, of course, is to pay people enough so that if they're not um, you know, working professional jobs or, or higher service jobs, that they can provide for themselves and for their kids where, they, where you, know, you don't have a situation where minimum wage workers are actually needing to do food drives at Christmas so that they can afford to, to eat uh, decently. Um, so, you know, one of the, you know, it, it brought me back to one of the influences and, uh, of, of the book. And for me was uh, this old novel by Emile Zola, a great novel called Germinal. And in that book, it's a, it's a novel about French coal miners in the 1800s. And about and it uh, and it exposes the whole system whereby these you know these poor coal miners are are living in miserable conditions. They're paid very little, but then then they're paid in in only company scrip, so that they can only you know it further enrich the company, by <laughs> because they can only shop at those stores. But of course they they get behind, and so it's this vicious cycle. Um, and and I think we're beginning to to understand that um, unfettered. You know, our system may be in the way that uh, the laws are structured and tax laws and inheritance laws, but that, uh, that the society is structured for a winner-take-all situation. Um, and so that the income distribution, it gets way out of whack um, rather than, um, you know, again, you know, we all want, you know, I think we all believe in a certain sort of capitalist society, but 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 maybe we're beginning to see the the, uh, the beginnings of a capitalist system that, um, in at least the way we have it now, um, where um, it, the the opportunity doesn't exist and, and and people's lives again the destinies are diminished. Well, the capitalistic system is is a uh, has been 
it's only what a couple hundred years. It's not very. It's very young. So we don't really it's very know, young, right? right? Yeah, right. And so we. I think. Is, yeah. Yeah, I think we're we're you know I, there was a point I think after particularly it's a very young system and um, uh, after the depression in our country I think you know, we there was a, a a real a real move towards a little bit more of a uh, you know some uh, some some socialist, you know, I, that word scares people, but some more socialist sort of things, and, you know, including Medicare, <laughs> you know, unemployment insurance. Uh, Which no one uh, wants to describe as socialism, but... Right, and I think, I think we, you know, maybe more, if we can speak more generally, the book, my novels also, I think, responding more generally to an idea that things are out of balance in the environment, in the economy, um, in in fact, maybe even our souls, uh, in terms of you know that 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 things are on a track that are unsustainable. Um, and if you, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we kind of feel like hmm, maybe things are unsustainable the way we're going now about the way we consume, um, the way we educate. Uh, the way we take care of our elderly and our, our um, and less well-off, um, I don't think we want to go back to a feudal system, but uh, where there are the kings and peasants. Um, but but are we building a society that look is looking more and more like that? Um, I, you know, I wonder about that. Well, it seems to me that we always or we seem to take an all-or-nothing approach. I mean, like you just said, we don't want to go back to a feudal system, but it doesn't mean because we, we're in this, we're, we have a capitalistic system, it's not that or a feudal system. There's a lot in between, isn't there? I mean, a lot of changes that we can make. I mean, I want to go back to one thing you said, because you, I, that statistic, about 70% of the boys in poverty remain in poverty. And I, I, I had this discussion the other day with, with someone, you know, this welfare-to-work program, you know, trying to provide... Uh, jobs for particularly for women because women tend to be the ones still who are the take care of the children, and right. we put women in these kind of compromising jobs that pay little, take them away from their children, take these children as you and actually you just said put them in daycare centers which may be good, but don't have the same effect as if let's say women or the primary caretaker could be home to take care of these children, that we need to be able to support, I think the society needs to be able to support those families because that's how you get, you, I think you change, in the long run, that's how you change the generations. Not yeah, just, I mean, yeah. exactly. And in Europe, they do have how many years of, you know, support um, so that um, they have grants to young mothers so that they can stay home and, and raise their children. Um, and... Um, rather than going out and working in the, you know, at a minimum wage job that's going to lead nowhere anyway. Um, so, I mean, again, we there's a lot of discussion, of course, about implementation, but I think we, and and particular particular um, approaches to these problems, but that that's a, there's a lot to be discussed, I think. But but I think we all have to begin to to recognize that that there is a general general problem. Um, and that, and that it's not getting better; it's getting worse. Um, well, and that's one of the that's one of the things that surprised me about the writing of this novel is that I, I guess, as a regular citizen, and you know, I live a comfortable life as a college professor and as a novelist. Uh, um, I I didn't realize how much it 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 uh, it worried me 
uh, and how much anxiety I actually had about, about, about certain trends. Well, as a college professor, I mean, you're connected to young people, obviously. What's their response? Well, first of all, what's their response to your book, and what kind of discussions has that led to in terms of what we've been talking about today? Well, I think uh, a lot of young people today, I mean, I guess you'd call them millennials, uh, they, they sort of feel that they're, they've been uh, left, to their, left on their own. You know, they, I think they feel like a lot of uh, older people, baby boomers and, and near baby boomers, um, have, have gotten all they can get out of the society and, and economy, um, you know, kind of took advantage of it, wrote it up, and now... Um, you know, basically don't care, you know, you know, ruin the environment <laughs> with all their uh, consumption. And now, um, and now there are no jobs anymore. There's no opportunity. There's not as much opportunity. I think college grads now are as, as anxious and worried uh, and, and feeling uh, bere- as bereft as ever. Um, are they looking for different kinds of opportunities? I mean, are my, I'm a baby boomer, and my generation was, you know, looking for jobs that would at least last 10, 15, even 20 yeah. years. So you have the millennials. Yeah. They don't even, I think their expectation is not to stay in a job more than two years, as I understand well, it. Yeah, because those jobs don't exist, particularly for people who don't study, you know, accounting or business. Um, you know, if you're interested in humanities, and I think that's a super important thing. You know, look at all the ways in which, um, you know, potential um, job opportunities have, have really disappeared in, in journalism, um, you know, and in other kinds of uh, writing-related jobs. Uh, you know, those, those kinds of jobs don't exist anymore. So, um, and, and now you even have, and so it, it, it creates this other trend where people are just saying, look, I'm just going to get educated so I can get a job, um, rather than being educated. Uh, and then getting into a job and learning that job. Um, So it's, you know, are are we getting too focused as a society, you know, too utilitarian, you know? Um, You know, why are we, why do we give anyone education then? Why don't we all just, you know, learn how to run a business uh, right from the start? Well, because, um, you know, there's there's something to, to reading books and learning about history and, learning about other people's, uh, that makes us better. Yeah, and better understanding the context in which we live and where we've come right. from. And uh, right. I mean, I agree with you. Although I think we spend too much time, and I'd like you to comment on this. We don't have that much more time left. But I think we spend a lot of time talking about the jobs that no longer exist anymore. They don't exist anymore, whether it's the car industry. Things are changing and and evolving. So why can't we focus on what Things, jobs will be different. The way we approach work will be different. All of that is different, and especially, you know, to me, it seems like that's something that should be talked about in college campuses. But we we kind of focus on what was, and it's like that's over. Yeah, well, that's true, and I think the the kids are, are pretty resourceful. Actually, they end up creating their own jobs in some ways. You know, um, with either with the new media economy or. Um, uh, in some way related to that, you know, I think a lot of my students uh, end up doing writing inside of, you know, software developing companies or um, or, or creating their own blogs and own, own websites and, um, you know, many businesses. It's not an easy go, but it's, it's definitely more self-creative, which is nice. Um, and I think that's probably the way they're going to go. And, you know, I, I think that my students are 
are a little bit disappointed about what what their prospects are, but um, but I think they actually work hard as hard as anyone else. So it's uh, I'm still hopeful. Yeah, I'm very hopeful, and I, I keep going back to okay, the baby boomers. We had uh, we had the Vietnam War, and we had women's issues and civil rights issues, and kind of you know the way you're describing your students, even though the issues are different, but the attitude and the feelings are very similar, you know, and uh, nuclear power and all of those things were all part of my college experience. And, uh, you know, it was sort of like the world has come to an end. Uh, It didn't. But um, so I'm always trying to fit that into like, you know, what you've just been talking about, um, you know, well, we've been talking about the issues of the, and related to your book, you know, this whole idea of stratification and the rich and the poor and, climate change and all of those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. We only have a minute left, so I want to just mention your Chang Ray Lee, On Such Full Sea. Uh, which oh, it's is, actually On Such a Full Sea. On Such a Full. They left out the A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On Such a Full Sea, and you can buy the book at bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. And uh, Chang Ray, is there a um, website that we can go to for more information about you and the book? Uh, there's a one at, at Penguin, my publisher, but I have a Facebook page, too, so I welcome people to check that out. To go to your Facebook page? Yeah. Great. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Yep, I enjoyed our discussion. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers 
leaders together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is my second guest, Vikas Chingran, and he is the author of Emote, Using Emotions to Make Your Message Memorable. Um, uh, Vikas is a MIT-trained engineer and researcher who used to suffer from poor speaking skills, due in large part to being both an introvert and an immigrant. And so he started public speaking to improve in this area and eventually won the Toastmasters 2007 World Championship of Public Speaking, the first East Indian and only the second Asian to do so in the 80-year history of the competition. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Vikas. Catherine, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so your book, Emote, Using Emotions to Make Your Message Memorable. Well, I guess it's really important for all of us to make our message memorable, whether it's, and particularly in business, um, but anywhere, even just in terms of connecting and, and, and relationships. So you, in your book, describe an emotion-based approach to verbal communications. Let's talk about what that is and why it's important. Yeah, sure, Catherine. I, I like to always give people an example to understand what this concept is about. Uh, you know, just uh, we all have a favorite dish that we usually eat whenever we go to a restaurant. For me, that's uh, a, a coconut-based Thai curry. So I have this chicken and coconut curry over rice, and that that's really something that I enjoy. But I always look back and, and think about the two questions. First, uh, what fills my stomach? And it's pretty clear that the rice and then the chicken really fill my stomach. But that's not why I remember the dish and go back and eat it again and again. The reason I go back is because of the sauces and the spices. And a very uh, uh, this analogy actually goes over to speaking and communications very well because even though people come and talk to you and, and listen to you because of the information you provide, they will never remember the information if, if that is the only thing you provide. The reason they remember the information is because the sauces and the spices, which in, an, in a speaking context are the emotions that go with it. So the emotions really make your information memorable. And that's really what the book is about. So we're talking about the transfer of emotions when you are transferring information or communicating. That's, that's right. And sometimes we, we forget about the stories and the emotional side of, of the information that we are providing. Anything, any information we provide has a story behind it. How was it collected? What is the background? Uh, all of that we tend to forget and just share this is it. This is the final result without realizing that that is not how people will remember it. They will remember it if you provide the stories and the emotions behind it. That is what will make your final information memorable. 
And so we tend to provide so much of information without realizing that almost none of it will be remembered by the audience unless we provide the, the emotional aspect to it. Uh, give us an example of that, get, of someone who is able to do that and perhaps maybe the opposite of when we don't, when there is a lot of information but we can't really, we never get too much of it because of the way it's present, presented. That's what you're talking about. So, like, you know, give us a context in which we can, of a speech or, you know, some kind of a communication process that would be helpful for us to really understand what you're talking about. Absolutely. So let me give you a couple of examples and then maybe uh, describe a process of how this could be done. So I'm, I'm a researcher by training. I still work in a very technical area. And I go to a lot of conferences which are technical in nature, where people have done wonderful research and experiments and, and then have uh, the, uh, this conference, they get up and, and talk about that. And And it's very common to have people come up and just present slide after slide of data and information, essentially what they have been able to do in a, mat, you know, in a couple of years, two, three, four years, is, is put in a 20-minute presentation without providing any kind of context, the challenges they went through, the experiments that did not work, the, the, uh, the issues that they had, uh, the wrong paths that they took. Those are the things, really, that get an audience emotionally involved, and they will begin to relate with the process and the data and thereby remember the information that you tend to provide. So I see a very few people actually do that. And I'll give you an example of how I tried to incorporate that in a speech that I made a couple of years ago, also in a very technical conference. It was about some data that we in our company, a bunch of researchers, had collected, and it was very unusual. And, and only when we were able to go back and, and understand what the data was about were we able to understand how it relates to uh, to to what the technical findings were. So essentially, it made sense, but we had to spend a lot of time understanding why it made sense or how it made sense and provide a great insight. So I thought, well, this is very much like like a criminal case. you know. So I thought about Sherlock Holmes uh, and said, this is how Sherlock Holmes does his work. You know, He walks into a crime scene, nothing makes sense. And uh, then the, uh, over a process of the case, uh, pieces things together, and eventually, when the case is resolved, that's, you know, everything makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And said, so this is exactly our story. So my whole presentation was in the form of a Sherlock Holmes case. And I came in, and the first slide was the crime scene. And the crime scene was where essentially where the data was collected. And it was about these you know, criminals, a bunch of researchers who, who went about doing, you know, finding out some information. And eventually, it was resolved. And when it was resolved, everything made sense. So by putting it in terms of a story, that whole piece of information was made a lot more memorable because people could relate to it, they enjoy stories, it provides a very strong emotional context, and thereby, even though the same information was presented, it was presented in a way now that that people will remember for a long time. Because I'm thinking, you're an engineer, MIT-trained engineer, and you know, when we think of engineers, it's always boring data. I mean, that's what I think of. If, if I had to sit through a presentation of engineering, you know, as you're describing it, some kind of a, a research, it would 
be, or I, my expectation was would be that it would be boring, but as you put it in that Sherlock Holmes contest, that's very clever. I like that. Uh, what about, what other examples do you have, I mean, of, of, you know, how this works? Because in social work, we talk about putting a face on the problem. You know, if we're talking about uh, diagnoses and, and treatment of a patient or individuals, we talk about case histories because that's how people remember it. They, that's how they can relate to it, relate to the diagnoses. So uh, it's another way of saying it, but putting a face, putting a, a face on the problem. It, you're absolutely right. Actually, the business uh, community has already figured this out a long time ago. They have a system of education which is based on case studies. And case studies is, as you mentioned, nothing more than information presented with a story. So you have these people who are given characters and they've given this background story behind it and you discuss the issue where people get involved, they get emotionally involved, and because of these emotions, these, this information is now made memorable. So this approach actually is used all over, you know, maybe not called this way, but essentially the, the essence of the, of the approach is seen in many, many aspects of what we do. What's happened on the engineering side, on the research side, is that, you know, we, we get trained a lot on, on writing and reading skills, and this is just a problem with our education system and very little on speaking and listening skills. And when you come into the workforce and you're working in teams, listening and speaking skills are the most important communication forms. And, and what's happened is we've gone through years of this training, but we've not been trained in the two uh, common uh, forms of communication that are used in, uh, in corporate America. So we really come out unprepared. And that's really how I felt when, you know, 10 years ago when I started this journey, I was uh, basically second to none in anything related to math, science, and engineering, but, but could not communicate very well. And, and well, you describe yourself as an introvert and an immigrant, and those were two things that were holding you back in terms of your communication skills. So how do you take somebody who is an introvert, because introverts, it's, it would seem to me, it's very difficult to speak no matter what kind of a story you're telling. And if you're an immigrant and you have trouble with the language, that's an added piece to it. So how did it, this all work for you? How were you able to even get up in front of an audience and, and speak? And so that's really the, the what what I've learned in my journey, and, and I, what I began to understand is verbal communication, to a great extent, is just a back and forth of emotion, and and this back and forth of emotion forms the soul of of what a speech is about, or what communications is about, and once I understood that, then I began to realize that all the things that I thought were perceived handicaps. Uh, like my my grammar, maybe maybe uh, I you know I used to think in a different language, my my native language. Uh, so I was a little slow in getting the right words. But I began to realize that these are all tools which help with that emotional exchange. This is not what a speech is about. So that really helped me get over these perceived handicaps. And I began to realize that if I am authentic, I bring myself to the table. I can engage people emotionally because emotions are much more than these tools that we use in speaking and communication. And that understanding and realization really propelled my growth as a communicator. So what groups specifically do you address? I know you obviously you've written the book, but besides that, you work directly with people, uh, helping them to, do, to understand how to 
do presentations, to do speeches. Um, who, what groups are, are you, do you work with or are you working with now? So actually, to tell you the truth, I, I, my, my present occupation is still as an engineer. I work for Shell Oil Company based out of Houston, and that's what I do for a living. This is a passion of mine, which I've realized really contributes to my, my being an effective leader and, uh, and an engineer and researcher in corporate America. So what, I'm, what I've tried to do here is to present an understanding, a different way to look at verbal communication, which I think will get a lot of people out of what they think are perceived handicaps and help them understand that they too can be wonderful communicators if they just understand fundamentally what they're trying to do when they're communicating. So what would you do in a workshop? Because I know you do conduct these workshops to help people become better speakers. Give me an example of a typical workshop that, that, you, that you would do and for whom. Sure. So, you know, like a, for a, my, the, one of the main things I try to achieve in a workshop is to help people understand fundamentally what they are doing when they are communicating or when they get up and speak. So what I try to do is the first thing I ask people is, is what is a speech? Help me define what a speech is. And you would be surprised. People who've been communicating for years have de- delivered literally hundreds of presentation, presentations have a hard time defining a speech or what they are doing when they get up and speech, speak. And that process is very clarifying for a lot of people. Then what I try to do is to help them understand in a very different way as to what a speech is about. So what I'll do is I'll play a piece of music. And I will, I will just ask them to be aware of their emotions as this piece of music plays. And I choose the piece of music so that after three or four minutes, their emotional state is completely changed. So they were maybe emotionally neutral at the, at the start of the piece of music. And after four minutes, because of a, a music composer who really knows what's, how to work with emotions, they would feel excited or sad or really thrilled and victorious, you know, so a lot of energy would come just after four minutes. And I tell them, you know, this is exactly what a speech is. It's just that you are using different tools. You're using verbal, you know, words, grammar. You're using, you're using vocal varieties, gestures, stories. But essentially what you're doing at a fundamental level is working with the emotions of your audience. And if you understand what where you want your audience to end up emotionally, this is the emotional state that I want my audience to be at the end of a speech, then you can craft a speech, an emotional journey that will make your message memorable. And All right, I want to give you an example talk. because today, uh, particularly in this economy, people are uh, fundraising is a big thing because it's very difficult yeah. to raise funds these days for different organizations, nonprofit organizations. And what, how would you, let's say you were getting up and giving a speech and you just said you need to know where you want to go with this speech, what you want from your audience after you give the speech. Let's say you want money from them. You want them to donate to a particular yep. cause, your cause. Yep. Um, what would you do in that kind of a situation? How, what kind of emotion are you trying to, to, to get from the audience so that they will act on, on your speech? Or... Sure. So that's actually a very, a very good point. Uh, so here's the, here's the situation. Really, the purpose of your speech is for people to contribute to your cause, whatever the cause might be. So basically trying to raise some funds. So the question really at the start of the speech 
is the first question you should be asking yourself how should i want what do i want my audience to feel at the end of the speech so that my purpose is fulfilled that means they are likely to give or donate to the cause and in that case you sit back and so how should i feel how why would i donate to a cause and so the first thing might be that you want your audience to feel that they are making a difference that their contribution is going to materially change somebody's life the second thing you might want them to feel is that this organization will use your funds in the right way that means they are not be wasted there's not a lot of money going into managing things and not being put into use that is sort so we are going to take care of your money and you will make a difference by doing this third thing you might want to point out is that you're leaving a legacy you're leaving behind your your now part of a cause that is much larger than who you are and these are strong emotions that you can leave your audience with which will make it likely for them to then contribute to your cause and then the whole process of writing the speech you know how long you have for the, for the speech is essentially helping them get to this emotional state and planning that emotional journey and if the end of the speech if you have made them feel this way then in my opinion you have delivered a wonderful speech do you ever want your audience to feel guilty uh so that after you know they will do something because they feel guilty you've created this sense of guilt for whatever it is that you want for oh. them oh absolutely so yes yes the real interesting part about working with emotions the good emotions that we deal with love joy are very soft emotions the stronger emotions are actually the the negative emotions anger hatred fear these are very strong emotions so very common technique used by speakers and actually commonly used by politicians is that they use the strong emotions to help people do or act in ways in which they would want them want them to act so you could use very strong emotions say for some just just to give you an example say i want people to stop smoking right? and so i go up and do a, do a pitch now i can talk about wonderful health benefits and this and that but what i could also do is make use very strong negative emotions like fear of death like uh like losing something you know negative emotions fear of guilt you know the uh, sorry the guilt and and then turn it around and say i don't want you to feel this way and that is why i want you to stop smoking and that could be very powerful because the negative emotions are much stronger than the positive emotions so in other words you want people to stop smoking you make them feel guilty that smoking may cause their child to become ill or sick or even die because of second hand that's exactly right Smoking. That's exactly right. So, well, so you mentioned politicians. A, okay, let's talk about how do you get, how do politicians get us to vote for them? I I would be surprised if you don't find politicians talking about using fear and anger as a common strategy before elections to get out the vote and get people on their side. So instead of talking about what they bring to the table, they talk talk about the fear and the anger on their opponent. and basically you need to elect me because this is what's going to happen to you if you elect this other guy and those emotions are much stronger so they what they do is they understand that these strong emotions will propel people to act and come out and vote and essentially what they're doing is vote for me because this is what's going to happen 
if you if you vote for your opponent and that's how they get out the vote understanding that the stronger emotions are the negative emotions and thereby using them is unfortunate but that's why they do it here's another this is more of an individual example like it's not exactly a speech that you're giving to a lot of people but let's say you're trying to convince a panel that you should be hired for a job, whatever the job is. You're going into a company, you're being interviewed by three or four people, maybe individually, but maybe all at the same time. So then you're sitting there and you are, in a sense, giving us a, a speech about yourself. Yep. How do, yeah, so what do, you, what do we do? How do we get hired for that job? So, so this, is, this is another very similar situation where you have, you're in front of, you're being interviewed for a job, and the real question you need to ask is, how do I need these people to feel for them to give me an opportunity is essentially the question. And, and you could come up with a couple of emotional states that you want to leave these people with. One is competence. And second is that if you don't hire me, then somebody else will. So I bring a lot to the table. If you don't hire me, then somebody else will. So that's an emotional state that you can leave them with, which brings a lot of urgency to make for, for them to make a decision. Okay? So these are a couple of emotional states that you can leave them with. And how you do that is the process of preparing for the interview. You know, what do you do to help them understand that or, leave, or make them feel that you're competent? How do you, what do you do in the interview to help them understand that you bring a lot to the table and that your skills will, are valuable in the market? And if they don't make a decision, then somebody else will probably offer you a job pretty soon. So these are, that's the process of preparing for an interview. But eventually, you want them to, to leave with these two kind of emotions so that they can make a decision quickly. They are prepared to act. Well, I'm kind of honing in now and getting even more personal because I know it, uh, in your bio you say you live with your wife and your two sons in Houston, Texas. Okay, two sons, you have children. I don't know how old they are. But, you know, as particularly as your children get older and teenagers, uh, and I'm a social worker and, and, and so I'm interested in, in how you would use your techniques to convince your children, i.e., let's say your teenagers, to do things that you think are good for them that they absolutely don't want to do. And essentially you are giving speeches. You know, if you have two kids, I oh, raise absolutely. three. Yeah. Absolutely. Three. And, and so one of the things that, uh, that I really enjoy about this approach is it, it actually not only helps you develop a, communica- a speech, it helps you develop a communication strategy. So how do I approach this problem? What is my communication strategy to, to tackle this problem? And so this is a similar problem. So I have very small kids, four and two, but I, what, I lo- what I love about them is kids at that age uh, show you, uh, basically are completely working on emotions. So they do things when they feel comfortable. They, they cry when they're uncomfortable. They let you know exactly what their emotional feel. The feedback is instantaneous. And and that's beautiful because it helps me understand how I make make my have to make my two year old or my four year old feel for them to do something. It could be as simple as just have dinner, which is you know sometimes uh, uh, takes an hour long. It's an hour long exercise every every evening. But even there, just understanding how does how does I how do I make my four year old feel so that he's going to have dinner, and that's really a communication exercise in itself. So everyday experiences can be used to help you get better using this approach because really you are communicating for 80% of the time you're awake, you're communicating in some way. 
And so this approach applies to, uh, applies to all of those communication situations. Well, I want to mention the book again because we only have a couple minutes left. So it's Vikas Chingren, and his book is Emote, Using Emotions to Make Your Message Memorable. Uh, and we can go online, I assume, and we obviously can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. But do you have a website, Vikas, that we can go to? Absolutely. My website is vikasjingran.com, and that's spelled V-I-K-A-S-J-H-I-N-G-R-A-N.com. So that will give us information about the book, and also because you are do conduct these uh, seminars and, and workshops, uh, do you go around the country doing that, or uh, and, and is there a schedule for that if anyone were interested? Yes, so, so you can find all of that information uh, on my website. I do take on on uh, workshop opportunities and keynote opportunities all over the country. Um, my schedule is limited because uh, I don't do this full-time, but you can find my schedule online and we, you can get in touch with me to check out an opportunity. Well, it's been great talking to you today. I'm going to take everything that I learned from you because in each one of those situations that you described, um, I'm about to give a speech and I've got children. And I mean, it's, uh, it's very practical, I guess, and very easy to do once you understand it, even for those who are introverts or who are not, uh, who, who come here from other countries and don't speak the language. So very helpful. Thank you, Catherine. I, I hope it, uh, it is empowering to some of those people who are afraid of getting up and speaking. Definitely. Very empowering. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.